0: this is chapter forty one of a tramp abroad this librivox recording is in the public domain a tramp abroad by mark twain chapter forty one the fearful disaster of eighteen sixty five one of the most memorable of all the alpine catastrophes was that of july eighteen sixty five on the matterhorn already slightly referred to a few pages back the details of it are scarcely known in america to the vast majority of readers they are not known at all. Mr. Wimper's account is the only authentic one. I will import the chief portion of it into this book, partly because of its intrinsic interest, and partly because it gives such a vivid idea of what the perilous pastime of alp climbing is. This was Mr. Wimper's ninth attempt, during a series of years, to vanquish that steep and stubborn pillar or rock. It succeeded, the other eight were failures. No man had ever accomplished the ascent before, though the attempts had been numerous. Mr. Wimper's Narrative We started from Zermatt on the 13th of July, at half-past five, on a brilliant and perfectly cloudless morning. We were eight in number, Cross, Guide, Old Peter Taugwalder, Guide, and his two sons, Lord F. Douglas, Mr. Haddow, Reverend Mr. Hudson, and I to ensure steady motion one tourist and one native walked together the youngest taugweiler fell to my share the wine-bags also fell to my lot to carry and throughout the day after each drink i replenished them secretly with water so that at the next halt they were found fuller than before this was considered a good omen and little short of miraculous on the first day we did not intend to ascent to any great height and we mounted accordingly very leisurely. Before twelve o'clock we had found a good position for the tent, at a height of eleven thousand feet. We passed the remaining hours of daylight, some basking in the sunshine, some sketching, some collecting. Hudson made tea, I coffee, and at length we retired, each one to his blanket-bag. We assembled together before dawn on the fourteenth, and started directly it was light enough to move. One of the young Togwalders returned to Zermatt In a few minutes we turned the rib which had intercepted the view of the eastern face from our tent platform. The whole of this great slope was now revealed, rising for three thousand feet like a huge natural staircase. Some parts were more, and others were less easy. But we were not once brought to a halt by any serious impediment, for when an obstruction was met in front it could always be turned to the right or to the left. For the greater part of the way There was no occasion, indeed, for the rope, and sometimes Hudson led, sometimes myself. At 6.20 we had attained a height of 12,800 feet, and halted for half an hour. We then continued the ascent without a break until 9.55, when we stopped for fifty minutes, at a height of 14,000 feet. We had now arrived at the foot of that part which, seen from the Riffelberg, seems perpendicular or overhanging we could no longer continue on the eastern side. For a little distance we ascended by snow upon the arete, that is, the ridge, then turned over to the right, or northern side. The work became difficult, and required caution. In some places there was little to hold. The general slope of the mountain was less than forty degrees, and snow had accumulated in, and had filled up the interstices of the rock-face, leaving only occasional fragments projecting here and there these were at times covered with a thin film of ice it was a place which any fair mountaineer might pass in safety we bore away nearly horizontally for about four hundred feet then ascended directly toward the summit for about sixty feet then doubled back to the ridge which descends toward zermatt a long stride round a rather awkward corner brought us to snow once more that last doubt vanished the matterhorn was ours nothing but two hundred feet of easy snow remained to be surmounted the higher we rose the more intense became the excitement the slope eased off at length we could be detached and cross and i dashed away ran a neck-and-neck race which ended in a dead heat at one forty p m the world was at our feet and the matterhorn was conquered the others arrived cross now took the tent-pole and planted it in the highest snow "'Yes,' we said, "'there is the flagstaff, but where is the flag?' "'Here it is,' he answered, pulling off his blouse and fixing it to the stick. It made a poor flag, and there was no wind to float it out, yet it was seen all around. They saw it at Zermatt, at the Riffel, in the Val Tournanche. We remained on the summit for one hour—one crowded hour of glorious life. It passed away too quickly, and we began to prepare for the descent.' hudson and i consulted as to the best and safest arrangement of the party we agreed that it was best for cross to go first and haddo second hudson who was almost equal to a guide in sureness of foot wished to be third lord douglas was placed next and old peter the strongest of the remainder after him i suggested to hudson that we should attach a rope to the rocks on our arrival at the difficult bit and hold it as we descended as an additional protection He approved the idea, but it was not definitely decided that it should be done. The party was being arranged in the above order while I was sketching the summit, and they had finished, and were waiting for me to be tied in line, when someone remembered that our names had not been left in the bottle. They requested me to write them down, and moved off while it was being done. A few minutes afterward I tied myself to young Peter, ran down after the others and caught them just as they were commencing the descent of the difficult part great care was being taken only one man was moving at a time when he was firmly planted the next advanced and so on they had not however attached the additional rope to rocks and nothing was said about it the suggestion was not made for my own sake and i am not sure that it ever occurred to me again for some little distance we two followed the others detached from them and should have continued so, had not Lord Douglas asked me about 3 p.m., to tie on to old Peter, as he feared, he said, that Togwalder would not be able to hold his ground if a slip occurred. A few minutes later, a sharp-eyed lad ran into the Monte Rosa Hotel at Zermatt, saying that he had seen an avalanche fall from the summit of the Matterhorn onto the Matterhorn glacier. The boy was reproved for telling idle stories. He was right, nevertheless." and this was what he saw. Michel Croze had laid aside his axe, and in order to give Mr. Haddo greater security, was absolutely taking hold of his legs, and putting his feet, one by one, into their proper positions. As far as I know, no one was actually descending. I cannot speak with certainty, because the two leading men were partially hidden from my sight by an intervening mass of rock. But it is my belief, from the movements of their shoulders, that Crows, having done as I said, was in the act of turning round to go down a step or two himself. At this moment Mr. Haddow slipped, fell against him, and knocked him over. I heard one startled exclamation from Crows, then saw him and Mr. Haddow flying downward. In another moment Hudson was dragged from his steps, and Lord Douglas immediately after him. All this was the work of a moment immediately we heard crows's exclamation old peter and i planted ourselves as firmly as the rocks would permit the rope was taut between us and the jerk came on us both as on one man we held but the rope broke midway between Togwalder and lord francis douglas for a few seconds we saw our unfortunate companions sliding downward on their backs and spreading out their hands endeavoring to save themselves They passed from our sight uninjured, disappeared one by one, and fell from the precipice to precipice onto the Matterhorn Glacier below—a distance of nearly four thousand feet in height. From the moment the rope broke it was impossible to help them. So perished our comrades. For more than two hours afterward I thought almost every moment that the next would be my last for the Togwilders, utterly unnerved, were not only incapable of giving assistance, but were in such a state that a slip might have been expected from them at any moment. After a time we were able to do that which should have been done at first, and fixed rope to firm rocks, in addition to being tied together. These ropes were cut from time to time, and were left behind. Even with their assurance, the men were afraid to proceed and several times old peter turned with ashy face and faltering limbs and said with terrible emphasis i cannot about six p m we arrived at the snow upon the ridge descending towards zermatt and all peril was over we frequently looked but in vain for traces of our unfortunate companions we bent over the ridge and cried to them but no sound returned convinced at last that they were neither within sight nor hearing We ceased from our useless efforts, and, too cast down for speech, silently gathered up our things and the little effects of those who were lost, and then completed the descent. Such is Mr. Wimper's graphic and thrilling narrative. Zermatt gossip darkly hints that the elder Togwalder cut the rope when the accident occurred, in order to preserve himself from being dragged into the abyss. But Mr. Wimper says that the ends of the rope showed no evidence of cutting but only of breaking. He adds that if Togwalder had had the disposition to cut the rope, he would not have had time to do it. The accident was so sudden and unexpected. Lord Douglas's body has never been found. It probably lodged upon some inaccessible shelf in the face of the mighty precipice. Lord Douglas was a youth of nineteen. The three other victims fell nearly four thousand feet— and their bodies lay together upon the glacier when found by mr. Wimper and the other searchers the next morning. Their graves are beside the little church in Zermatt. End of chapter forty one.